Welcome to Healthcare is Human, a monthly podcast featuring authentic storytelling and healthcare with your host, Dr. Ryan McCarthy. Welcome to Healthcare is Human. I'm Ryan McCarthy. Listeners, in this episode of the podcast, I am sitting down on the eighth floor of the Berkeley Medical Center, and I'm going to have my guest introduce herself. Hello, my name is Summer Ernst. I am the hospitalist coordinator here at Berkeley Medical Center. Um, I work for Sound Physicians, which is a hospitalist staffing company, and I work with a triad, um, which consists of a CPN, uh, which is a nurse, and my chief medical director, Dr. Preek. Now, Summer, you and I have worked together for, for some time, and let's go back to your first introduction to healthcare. Uh, I think it's important for us to reflect as you know, we look back on the last two years, and many of us have been doing a certain job during the pandemic, but your healthcare story, where does it start? Um, my healthcare story would probably start in high school at the old Washington County Hospital in Hagerstown, Maryland. Um, I was a pharmacy clerk during that time. And then I had left and went to Salisbury University, where I knew that I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Um, that didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to. And I ended up coming back into healthcare. And I came back to Berkeley Medical Center as a unit secretary on the um, progressive care unit. Now, when you were initially drawn into education, what were the things that appealed to you about that particular field at that time in your life? It was definitely the children, um, just education in general. I had done some student teaching, and I feel that I just liked working with kids. And then as I did some student teaching in Princess Anne, I decided that that was not what I wanted to do. And so uh, education's loss would be health healthcare's benefit, I guess. And so when you and I first started working together, you were a unit clerk. And um, what years would that have been? Um, that would have been 2014 until I took this position in 2018. Now, there you are as a clerk. And I know how essential clerks are for the functioning of, of any unit in a hospital. What do you think were the things that you learned then that you did not have any idea that would be helping you today? Communication, that's probably the biggest one, and just coordinating the communication between physicians, whether it's the hospitalist group at the time, uh, the cardiologists that we had here, specialty calling consults, just communication between everyone, including being supported, um, supporting to the nursing staff and the techs. Um, I've made beds, I've helped get waters for patients, just basically helping and supporting your team on the floor. And so... Uh, there you were as a unit clerk. And then, so you made a, a pretty big shift in career focus. And so while you were working, what kind of education did you have to go do while you were still holding down a full-time job? Um, I just did like basic BLS, ALS here at the hospital and just basically did continuing education courses. And then um, let's go back. So two years, two years ago, our lives obviously changed. Um, and I know I'm thinking about it a lot lately because two years is a long time. And I, I finally feel like many of us are starting to have perspective and we look back. So January, February, March 2020, uh, take me back to how you felt when this strange virus from afar became a reality. What were your, what were your initial thoughts and feelings? 
I feel like initial thoughts were confusion. I still remember that meeting with Dr. Simmons where he brought everyone in and explained, you know, what the situation was. We don't really know what's going on, um, but we definitely, you know, want to make sure everyone's aware. And I remember coming in that week and Dr. Parikh told Teresa and I we needed to work from home until we were told otherwise. And then being told by sound, no, you are support staff to the hospitalist group. You need to be on site at the hospital, which was very scary, not knowing what was going on. But they were correct. We needed to be here to support the physicians. Yeah, and many of us, I think confusion and, and fear, uh, for sure, I had many of those. Um, and then that first summer, was there a point when you started to think like, oh my goodness, this is settled in? I ask a lot of healthcare people, at what moment did you realize that like, this is reality, like it's staying? Did you have a moment or a day that summer where you just thought, oh, there's there's no end in sight? Yes, I did. I just figured it was the new normal. I mean, we had to adapt to the change that was being present. And I feel that change is the one thing that's constant in our lives. And it's something that we just had to deal with. And like I said, it's the new normal. Yeah. And for for all, well, all of us have had to adapt. And I think there have been challenges for, for working parents. Um, and initially in the pandemic, year one, summer one, into the fall, um, which was a bigger stress, home life, work life, the balance, confusion? I mean, what were the what were the the stressful themes at that time? Oh, definitely work-life balance. Um, having two kids that are 10 and 8, um, not having school open, not having the appropriate daycare that you need and still having to be the work is probably the biggest stress that I had. Um, fortunately, I was able to get the kids into the YMCA daycare where they did distance learning there as well. So they were around other kids who their parents were also essential workers. But it also took my 15-minute drive to work to backtrack to an hour and 15 minutes. Wow. So that must have been just a, a tremendous added stress. So extra commute. Um, and I, I, I want to ask you, so when we use that term essential worker, you think back, do you, are you proud of that? Do you resent it? Is it not a good term? Should we have a different term? Um, how do you reflect on being called an essential worker? I definitely don't resent it. I feel like in the beginning, there was a set group of people who we claimed were essential, but I feel like that's where we really changed the dynamic of who was essential. There's so many people in our lives that we didn't realize were such an essential part of our everyday life. Yeah. So examples of that were daycare providers. Like, you know, you don't realize how important daycare providers are, but they are really the staple to a working parent's lives. Um, you know, grocery store attendants, um, you know, the housekeeping staff here, everyone is essential in their way. And in the beginning, I had just thought that essential workers were physicians. They were, I never thought that I was essential until I was here and I was just playing a part of, you know, what everyone else was doing as well. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And, and that philosophy of that we all are matter, I actually think that um, there's nobody who's not essential. And it was that's how this my project started was talking to a custodian and a cashier on one of the early days and the recognition that all of us played a role. None of us were unessential. Um, and I know what you mean about the stress of, of being a working parent. Um, now, um, during so we've had two COVID winners. Um, as you look back, so I guess we would call the last one, the last one was the Omicron surge. Um, and then the first one before that was COVID winter number one. Were there any periods of those surges in the hospital 
where you felt like, oh my gosh, this is so overwhelming? Or did you ever have that personal struggle of, of how am I going to come in here and, and do this? Absolutely. Um, for the major part, it was staffing issues. So do we staff up? Do we staff down? How do we hold the census? You know, in the beginning, we had physicians who were only COVID unit, you know, prioritized. And then it was to the point where everyone had COVID patients. I worked seven days a week for all of 2020. Um, and I would do the reconciliation census for the physicians because at that point, that was the only thing that I could do to help them. Um, there was nothing else that I could do. You know, we are pretty much a family here. And at that point, that family aspect was taking away because we didn't want to be around each other because we didn't know of the unknown. And I feel that. Sorry, I lost it. Um, I know what you mean. So seven days a week, that must have taken a tremendous toll. How did you personally care for you during that period of time? Just what were the habits that you settled into? You know, many of us had not good pandemic choices, eating too much, you know, not sleeping enough, doom scrolling, too much television, some people smoking too much or drinking too much, you know, those, those coping skills that were not good. Um, what were the things that you decided were for you, the essential healthy toolkit, so you could just come in here and continue to do this? So I'll be very honest. In the very beginning, um, it was a lot of binge scrolling, TikTok, making crazy TikToks and drinking. And then I realized that, you know, this whole thing, it really need to be focused around our health and I need to put my health first. Um, so I did start running. That was something that I wanted to make sure that I was never a runner, but I just know that I need to put my health first. Um, and then from there, I've lost 20 pounds since the pandemic. And it's like I'm in the gym all the time because my health come first and with putting my health first it also put my well-being of not only myself but as my children as well and I feel like that's probably the most important thing that I've learned from this is our well-being like I was not focused on my well-being at all working seven days a week I didn't have I couldn't remove myself from work because I was so attached to it and that's what I try to tell you know the other coordinators like myself through sound that you know you have to be able to step away and take a break for yourself because you're deserving of that and you know you can't be attached to your work, you have to have your own life too and make sure that, you know, you're doing what's best for yourself. No, whether that's reading a book, that's going to the beach, whatever serves you and what makes you happy is what you should do. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's part of the reason, Summer, that I don't like that term essential worker, because then it, for many people, it gives them that identity that this work is essential to who I am. Now, many of us in healthcare feel very compelled and called to do this. Like this is not just a job. But I know what you mean. I've had personal recognition that, oh my gosh, I have to just leave the office and stop for today and go home and walk my dog and make dinner and get some fresh air. And I, I don't want to say I took that for granted, but I thought that, that before the pandemic, I personally thought that was a lower priority. And now I know that is essential for me to be a parent who doesn't scream at my kids or has the compassion to listen to somebody cry in front of me in my office have you found as you've changed these skills, do you have a bigger reserve emotionally, physically, do you to, to accommodate work stress and other things like that? Do you feel like you have like a different capacity given that you take better care of yourself? 
Absolutely. And the one thing that I put first is kindness. Um, the little things go really a long way. You don't think about it. Um, an example I'll use is we have an 8 a.m. call that we're on. And I, when I'm on the call, I'm always very happy, go lucky. And I've had people stop me in the hallway and say, Summer, I just, you're, to hear your voice in the morning, it's so refreshing. And, you know, it just made me feel great because I'm like, I'm just showing up as me and taking care of myself. And people really appreciate that as well as, you know, sending little notes out on the 8 a.m. census reconciliation that I send. And just really, I feel really um, resiliency is probably the word that I want to use for this because it's really helped me to just make sure I'm doing the best that I can, but it also trickles down on others without knowing. I can definitely uh, attest to uh, your bright and sunny disposition and that infectious smile. And does it make all the difference? And the answer is yeah. And um, I, I think my two-year pandemic take-home, and I've started to articulate this, I think that, um, so, so my, let's start with my hope. My hope is, I tell my patients now, this virus is becoming endemic. We're not there yet, but it's, it's staying and people are understanding that. And what I hope becomes endemic uh, amongst my, for, we'll start with myself, is I hope that that recognition that the person in front of me, that they can get all of the compassion that I can offer them. Because during the pandemic, during hopeless situations, you know, what could I do? What could we do? What could you do? And the answer is we could treat that person in front of us like just a fully, a human being who deserves the benefit of the doubt and all of the grace that we can give them. I'm hoping that's what becomes endemic in me. Um, and I hope that for those of us that have lived through this experience, um, that idea that, you know, you say kindness and resiliency, um, and I want you to define what you mean by about being resilient, but I think you're exactly right. That recognition that each of us can really take care of, and there's other words we could use, you know, for the person in front of us, minister to them, listen to them, um, uh, provide, hold space. There's, you know, for whatever they might need. Um, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, just be able to adapting to change in a positive manner. Like just because there's change doesn't mean that we have to act negatively towards it. Um, like I said, things are bound to change. It's all about how we look at it and how we face it head on. Um, always having a positive attitude towards those types of situations helps better it because, you know, my philosophy is, okay, we do have a problem, but what's the solution? How do we come to a resolution of what this issue is? If we stay focused on the problem, then of course it's going to affect us negatively. Whereas we focus on a solution, whether it's, you know, you look at it positively or negatively, negatively, it's just, you just look at that as in a, in a better light, I would say. Now, as we look into 2022, obviously a lot of things are uncertain. And uh, this is what I'm talking to patients about now. They say, Hey, what's going to happen next? And I say, I don't know. And Hey, is this the last big wave? And I say, I don't know. And when you think about you and your work-life balance and your family, what are things that you're looking to personally spring, summer, fall of this year? Because clearly things are different. Clearly we are in a much better position. We have vaccines, we have therapeutics, we have an understanding in the public. So this is not the summer of 2020. So what are you most looking forward to doing? 
Um, just looking forward to, I guess, adapting to the new normal, doing things that I would do before the pandemic, whether that's, you know, baseball and softball with my kids, taking family vacations, whether it's with a mask, without a mask, just enjoying life in general. I mean, I still want to go out there and enjoy life and just do all the things that I did previously, but kind of in a different manner, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And um, I have found that during the pandemic that, you know, uh, for all of the adults in my life arguing over lots of things uh, that my kids adapted pretty quickly. Um, oh, you need to, I need to put this mask on so I can go to school. Okay. I need to do a, put a mask on so I can do this. Okay. Um, there was very little squabble um, and the, my kids adapted very quickly. Did you find with your own children that um, they got on with life much faster than, than many of the adults around you? Absolutely. I feel like they adapted much better than most adults around me. And as just like you said about the masks, um, I tried to keep it interesting and fun. So I would buy the cool mask that they like or the colorful ones just to keep it interesting. But the other day um, when Washington County Schools made the, ma the mask mandate optional, it was probably the happiest day of their lives. They really were so happy and they could not wait to walk into school. And I told my son, I'm like, well, now you have to wipe your mouth off because we'll be able to see your face. Yeah, I think um, I had this. I had a similar experience with my own kids uh, recently. Uh, the first time uh, my high school sophomore went to went to high school with no mask. Um, you know, uh, I have a twelve year old daughter, and so two years or sixteen uh, percent of her life she's been wearing a mask. Um, so yeah, the the simple joy of of not having that at school. Um, were there anything else that your your kids taught you? Um, I specifically mentioned you know just how flexible my kids were. Um, they definitely reminded me to not be a stubborn middle-aged person set in my ways. Anything else that they, they touch along the way? Exactly what you said, flexibility. I mean, they really got put through the ringer. You know, they got taken out of school. Um, I homeschooled them, which that also proves again why I did not want to be a teacher because that did not work out as, as hard as I wanted it to. Um, and then from there, just being, you know, being drugged to a different daycare and then being, you know, summer camp and just really, you know, being flexible in that aspect of having to do all these different things because mom has to go to work and just understanding that, wow, like they really are just as much, much as affected of this as I am. Now, with that, with that change uh, that you're describing, do you feel like the pandemic forced any really more complicated conversation into your dinner table where you had to explain more of your adult life to your children than you would under, under normal times? I felt like I had to. I felt like I was explaining to my kids just the complex, how do we balance and, you know, all of these other things and school is out, but mom and I are still working and we can't do this because of this and you can't do that. And let me explain why this is canceled. Did you find that you were having lots of, for lack of a better term, adult conversations with your kids to try to get them to understand and process the pandemic in real time? Absolutely. Um, I feel that the conversations, you know, being two elementary school kids, the conversations were definitely different. You know, I had to skew it to where they understood, but they were still adult conversations. And in turn, I feel like that affected most of our kids where they had to grow up, you know, within the last few years more than they needed to. And I feel like that kind of took some of their childhood having to deal with that. 
So yes, those conversations definitely happen. And I, in a way, as a parent, you feel guilty about it because you want to, you know, protect your kid from the world. You want to protect them, you know, from the unknown and you not knowing as a parent and then trying to explain that to your children, it really affects you, but you have to do the best that you can do in trying to make sure that they understand, hey, everything's going to be okay. We got this, you know, just making sure that, you know, we can do what's best for everyone. Now, um, with with your positive outlook, I know you have that here. I know that's a part of who you are. Were there any times during the pandemic, and um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll say personally, there were times that I really got worn out being a cheerleader. You know, I had to be a cheerleader for, for my spouse. I had to be a cheerleader for my kids, you know, and constantly, and, and for my patients. And did you ever feel like, oh my gosh, I am constantly trying to be positive for all these people who depend on me did that did just that part of it it sometimes feel overwhelming or exhausting or burning out or did you feel like oh my gosh my sunny optimistic disposition might crumble during the pandemic and be broken it was definitely broken i did experience that and i you know i there was a time where i was burnt out and i started having those negative thoughts and then i realized that that's not who i am why am i letting this negatively affect me when i'm such a positive person but you're right i mean it, it affects all of us and it did i was burnt out i was worn out i was angry i think angry was the most part the most you know painful thing because i was just angry that no one knew what was going on you know things became political things became this, that, you know, working in healthcare, you became the enemy, you know, it's just a, a number of things. And that weight being put on you as far as your family, your work family, it just really, it really got me down for a moment. And I think that's why I incorporated my health into it, because that's where I was like, okay, either I'm going to have to go see my PCP to be put on something, or I'm going to have to make a drastic change in my life. So when we talk about that anger, and I, I definitely share a lot of that, um, it took me, I think, the first year of the pandemic to kind of just figure out what was I angry about. And I realized that um, misinformation, uh, well, I'm going to call disinformation, intentionally misleading information, that stuff made me very angry. Um, how so many aspects of public health became politicized. Okay, I'm not taking one side or the other, but just things were politicized and there was arguing. Those things were making me very mad. You mentioned being the enemy. I had never had patients come in and basically accuse me of trying to mislead them. And it took me a year summer to really figure out um, that just how upsetting that was to me. Did you ever have any kind of that, what I'm going to call a professional assault, so to speak, where people were accusing you of you know, not knowing what you were doing or not having your heart in the right place? Did you have those kind of experiences? Yes, I did. And most of that came from family and on social media, especially when you shared something, you know, that was something that you resonated with as far as, you know, your healthcare, you know, your the physicians that I work with. Like I listened to that them because, you know, they trust the science. They went to school to be physicians. So I trust what they do every day and I work alongside of them. But to then have family members come and question, are you sure that they're right? Are you sure like we don't know. And that was the biggest thing. And I feel like that's why we got the most criticism because we didn't know we were trying to work the best that we could at the capacity that we had. And along those lines, maybe we'll, maybe we'll finish with this summer. Um, I have great worries about that going forward. I have spoken about, you know, the gaslighting of science and the undermining of healthcare authorities. Um, 
do you worry about that going forward? Um, do you feel like COVID was kind of the first battleground in misinformation and there, there could be other things in the future where those of us that work in here in healthcare who try our best to be the medical authority are going to be undermined by people with different agendas? I 100% agree. Um, you know, we went from being heroes to, like I said, the enemy. And that that's really what it was. You know, we went to getting free pizza to be like, oh, these people are really right about what they're talking about. And, you know, it's just, it's really, it's really confusing, especially for those that work in healthcare, doctors and nurses. And it's just, I'm not sure where this will go within the next couple of years. I'm sure if anything else comes along, it will be the exact same thing. And I kind of want to blame social media a little bit for that. You know, the articles that people put out, news stations, and then people just share them without really knowing the facts. And they think because it is on a social media platform that it is facts when in fact it is not. Well, Summer, I know that you're a busy woman and I really appreciate you uh, sitting down to speak to Healthcare as Human. Thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity. You've been listening to Healthcare is Human. You've been listening to Healthcare is Human. Stories from the healthcare ecosystem. Ideas to change our health culture. This project was created by Ryan McCarthy. It was inspired by the hardworking staff of the Berkeley Medical Center. Be sure to check out the Healthcare is Human Facebook page to see amazing photographs by Molly Humphreys of Shepherdstown, West Virginia. You can find Molly's world-class portfolio by searching for Piccadilly Posh. Original music is by Isaac McCarthy, the one-man band. Kim Mattioli engineers the podcast. Some of our stories are featured in 100 Days in Appalachia. Check them out online at 100daysinappalachia.com. This project is supported by a grant from the West Virginia Humanities Council. Thanks to the Reed College of Media at our Mountain Mama, West Virginia University. Mountaineers, go first. And remember, the next time you go to the hospital, a clinic, and urgent care, be sure to keep in mind that healthcare, healthcare is, is human. human.